The title of my sermon this morning is God's Wisdom for Personal Relationships. So this, uh, this week I bumped into Mark Green at his place of work, and Mark wondered what I was preaching on. I said, God's wisdom for personal relationships. And Mark, in true Mark fashion, <laughs> he said, well, how are you going to explain our bad relationship? <laughs> and I said, well, I was going to use that as a sermon illustration. But um, all humor aside, um, we all have relationships, don't we? A home consists of a relationship between a husband and his wife and between parents and their children. When we gather with extended family, we enter the complex world of relationships with our relatives. And every time we go to work, we enter another world of relationships with our coworkers, vendors, and customers. Many people have relationships through memberships in various clubs or organizations. And when we go to church, as we are here today, we encounter more relationships. Almost everything we do involves relationships. Good relationships are among the most rewarding aspects of life here on earth. On the other hand, bad relationships can be one of the most painful parts of life. In fact, some people have found them so painful that they have simply chosen to avoid having relationships whenever possible. An example of this is in Johannes Spyri's famous classic titled Heidi, where Heidi's grandfather lives the life of a recluse up on a mountain because he can't get along with the villagers in the valley. Our relationships are a huge part of our life. Therefore, God gave us a significant amount of attention in Scripture. Today, I want to focus on a couple verses in the book of Proverbs and unpack a wealth of God's relationship or God's wisdom for a few aspects of our personal relationships. So if you want to, you can turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19 reads this way, A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and their contentions are like the bars of a castle. The first thing I want to note about this verse is that it is a factual statement. It is not a question. It's not a commandment. It's not even a doctrinal statement. It is, it is a simple statement about a practical reality in the world of relationships. However, it is important to note that this is not a positive statement. The construction of this verse is negative in nature as evidenced by the words offended and contentions. It is appropriate then to also characterize it as a warning. The scriptures are full of warnings about the consequence of certain behaviors. This particular verse is a warning about the unpleasant consequences of offending a brother. Who is our brother? Notice he is not an enemy, he is not a foreigner, and he is certainly not a stranger. He is a brother. And what is a brother? The word that is translated brother here is a relational word that denotes kinship. In the vast majority of the 629 instances where this Hebrew word is found in Scripture, 
It is used to describe people with a biological relationship. For example, when the Bible mentions the relationships between Cain and Abel, Abraham and Lot, Esau and Jacob, Joseph and his brothers, or the divided nations of Israel and Judah, this is the word that is used. However, I also want to point out that the word is occasionally used in Scripture in situations where there is no biological relationship at all. For example, it is used in Amos chapter 1, verse 9, where we have a judgment pronounced against Tyre for their mistreatment of the Israelites when they, and I quote from Amos chapter 9, when they remembered not the brotherly co covenant. The brotherly covenant spoken of here was the covenant of friendship that was made between Hiram, king of Tyre, and David, king of Israel, and then was later renewed with David's son Solomon. The point that I want to make is that the brother spoken of here in Proverbs 18.19 is not necessarily limited to a biological brother or a relative, but it can be applied to other relationships such as a friend, neighbor, co-worker, or a brother or sister in Christ. One thing that is clear about the brother in this scenario, whether he is a relative or some other acquaintance, is that he is offended. If we're going to understand the meaning of this verse, we we're going to have to understand what is meant by the word offended. Many times we use the word offended to describe someone who has had their feelings hurt or someone who is annoyed or irritated at the words or actions of another person. And while this verse might be an accurate description of some people's reactions to that kind of situation, it is not the literal meaning of the word. The Hebrew word that is used here is usually translated in its verb form as transgressed. This verse then is literally speaking about a brother who has been sinned against by someone who has a relationship with him. A good illustration of a brother who was offended in this sense is Esau. Jacob, his twin brother, conspired with his mother Rebekah to steal his father Isaac's blessing from Esau. This he did through deceiving his father. Jacob offended Esau by sinning against him, and as you probably know, Esau's hatred for Jacob was implacable, and it led to Jacob's lengthy exile from his home in Canaan. Jacob and Esau's relationship was probably strained before this event, but at least there was a tolerance of each other, and they were able to live near each other. However, Jacob's deceit made that impossible to continue, and Esau's hatred became as invincible as a strong-walled city. While it is true that this verse is talking about the reaction of a brother when he is actually sinned against, it needs to be pointed out that people often react the same way when they imagine that they have been sinned against, when in reality the other person may not have done anything wrong at all. It matters little whether wrong has actually been done. What matters is whether an individual believes he has been sinned against. This belief could be based on things like gossip, 
a false report, misperception, or a simple misunderstanding. I once read a true story about two brothers who were in business together. One day, one of the brothers laid some money on a counter at their place of business. The money disappeared before he returned, and his brother was the only person known to have been in the vicinity in the meantime. This led to an assumption of guilt and an accusation by the one brother, and a denial of guilt by the other brother. Eventually, the mistrust and broken relationship led them to dissolve their partnership, and the offended brother established another business in the same town. Many years later, when they were both old, a stranger walked into the original establishment that was still owned by the accused brother. He told a story about how many years before he had walked into the business and had seen some money lying on the counter. Looking around, he didn't see anybody, so he took the money and quickly left. He was back to confess his sin and repay the money. The brother listened in astonishment to this story, and he asked the man if he would please go across town with him to visit his brother and tell him the same story. This the man agreed to do, and the two brothers were reconciled that day when the offended brother realized that he had been completely wrong in his assumption about his brother's guilt. This illustrates how an offense, even though it is based on a false assumption, can lead to the same consequences. We are told that an offense, whether it is real or imagined, leads to a breach in a relationship that is so great that the task of repairing that relationship is harder than conquering a strong city or breaking through the bars of a castle. The first picture is that of a strong-walled city. In biblical times, a siege was often the only way to conquer a strong-walled city, and it was not unusual for such a siege to last for many months and sometimes years before the city could be conquered. The comparison with a strong-walled city gives us a picture of an offended person adopting a defensive posture. The offense has led them to place themselves behind a wall. The wall that they have erected is a formidable one, as anyone who has tried to win over an offended brother well knows. This wall may not be made of stones, but it is harder to penetrate and conquer than one that is. The second picture that we are given to describe the intractability of an offended person is that his contentions are like the bars of a castle. The bars of a castle would typically be made from iron, a metal that is noted for its great strength. The word contentions here has the idea of strife or brawling. In this picture, the offended person is taking a more active or offensive posture. Rather than retreating behind a defensive wall, he is engaging in contentious behavior and making verbal warfare with his accusations, denunciations, and indictments. He has been sinned against, or at least he believes so. Therefore, he proceeds to retaliate and punish the offender in any way that he can. 
The strength of an offense is really emphasized in this verse. So I want to comment on what it is that makes an offense so strong and difficult to overcome. In most cases, the strength of the offense is directly proportional to the closeness of the relationship. The closer the relationship, the greater the offense. The level of the offense is not based on the nature or size of the sin, but is based on who the offender is and how close their relationship is to the one who is offended. Who are the most likely candidates for this type of offense described in this verse? It's very predictable. Fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, in-laws, bosses, co-workers, next-door neighbors, and fellow church members. It's not the person that committed an atrocity that you read about in the news. It's not the stranger that pulled out in front of you and caused you to wreck your car. It's not what someone else's dad did to them. It's what your dad did to you. It's not what her husband did to her. It's what your husband did to you. The strength of the offense does not depend on the nature of the sin. It is based on the relationship between the offender and the offended. This verse in Proverbs emphasizes the difficulty that it is to win back the respect, the trust, and friendship that someone who has been offended, or from someone who has been offended. It is harder to repair this broken relationship than it is to conquer a strong-walled city. However, it must also be pointed out that many strong cities have been conquered. It took 21 years, but eventually the Ottoman Turks did conquer Candia. The Phoenicians put up a spectacular fight, but after a seven-month siege, Alexander the Great did eventually conquer Tyre. It's also true that many offended people have been won over and relationships have been restored. To illustrate this, I want to go back to the story of Esau and Jacob. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 41, it says that Esau planned to kill Jacob as soon as their father was dead. However, later in Genesis chapter 35, verse 29, it says that Esau and Jacob buried their father together. What happened in the intervening time that passed between the events that are described in these two verses? What caused Esau to change his mind and made it possible for Esau and Jacob to peaceably bury their father together? Did Esau simply forget the offense? Did the passing of time heal the hurt and cause Esau to drop the offense? The answer is no, he did not forget, and the passing of time did not heal the hurt. The Bible tells us that after Esau made this threat to kill him, Jacob, with the encouragement of his mother, fled from Esau and went to his uncle Laban in Haran. Jacob stayed with Laban for 20 years. 
during which time he married two of Laban's daughters. At the end of those 20 years, God told Jacob to return to his home with a promise that he would be with him. Jacob, anticipating that there might be trouble with Esau, sent some messengers to Esau to make peace ahead of his return. Apparently, that meeting did not go well, because when they returned, they reported that Esau was on his way to meet them with 400 armed men. Why would someone go to meet his brother with 400 armed men? Obviously, Esau had not forgotten, and the hurt had not been healed after 20 years. He was planning his revenge when he would finally kill Jacob. What was Jacob's reaction and response to this news? And if you want, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32, here we can uh, use Jacob's response as a template for our own response in situations where we have offended someone and are seeking reconciliation. According to verse 7 of Genesis chapter 32, his initial reaction was fear. It says, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. However, Jacob did not become paralyzed with his fear. He quickly responded to his threat, or to this threat, in three ways. He prayed, he formed a strategy, and he met Esau with humility. The first thing that Jacob did was to make his situation a matter of prayer. He had a serious problem on his hands, and he knew that he was in over his head. He also knew that there was only one person who could save him from his brother's anger. So now that his worst fears are realized, he turns to his God in prayer in verses 9 to 12. We'll go through these verses. Verse 9 then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country, to your kindred, and I will deal well with you. He begins his prayer by reminding God of his obedience to God's instructions, and he also reminds God of his promise to deal well with him. It was this promise that gave Jacob the courage to attempt the return in the first place. Now, of course, our situation and circumstances are going to be different than Jacob's were. But we can still follow this model by praying in a similar fashion, by reminding God of his promises to us when we obey him. In verse 10, he said, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Here, Jacob continues his prayer with a confession of unworthiness of God's mercy and the truth that God has revealed to him. Why is Jacob unworthy of God's mercy in this situation? It's because he knows all too well that it is not 
or that it is his own sin that got him in this predicament in the first place. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says that he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. That is what Jacob did, and we would be wise to follow his example. In verse 11, he continues by saying, Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. Here he prays for deliverance from Esau, not only because he fears for his own life, but Jacob also fears that Esau is cruel enough to kill his wives and children. Esau's contentions are like the bars of a castle, and Jacob knows that he doesn't have the ability to overcome them on his own. His money and possessions aren't going to deliver him, and no amount of charm or scheming is going to save him. Jacob knows he is reduced to a complete dependence on God's mercy and protection. And then finally, in verse 12, he concludes his prayer by saying, For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. He concludes his prayer with a reminder of the promise that God had made to him at Bethel 20 years before, when he was fleeing from his brother. We're told in Genesis chapter 28, that he laid down to sleep in the open air with a stone for his pillow and that God met him in a dream where he saw a ladder with angels descending and ascending and the Lord standing above it. When Jacob looked at his circumstances, he looked hopeless. It looked hopeless and caused fear. But when he remembered God's promise, that gave him hope. Today, if you're in a conflict where reconciliation seems impossible, you need to do what Jacob did and stand on the promises of God. For example, God promises that what appears to be impossible with man is possible with God. Reconciliation with Esau looked improbable, with Esau approaching with a small army. But God can change a person's heart, which is what he did in this case. The encouraging thing is that God can change anybody's heart if we will just cry out to him as Jacob did. The second thing that Jacob did was to carefully develop a specific plan of action. Jacob was not a fatalist. He did not just sit on his hands and wait and see what God would do to deliver him. He understood that if he was going to appease Esau and save his family from tragedy, he was going to need a responsible strategy. The approach that he took is described in verses 13 to 15. It says, So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 bulls. Hundreds of livestock. 
when we desire to win back a brother or sister that we have offended, this account teaches us to put some careful thought into how we are going to do it. It may involve giving them some presents like Jacob did, but more than likely, it will be some other approach. What we do in our situation will depend a lot on who the person is, the nature of their relationship with us, and the person's personality and character. Jacob knew his brother Esau very well, and he knew what Esau would respond well to, so he acted accordingly. Our own strategy should be appropriately adapted to our situation and the person we desire to be reconciled with. It may involve negotiation, mediation, or arbitration. For example, these types of things are often necessary when the conflict is business-related. Your plan may require the involvement of other people as counselors. This is often wise when the offense is in the context of marriage. Sometimes you may need to act quickly, and other times it may be beneficial to give it some time and wait a while before making a move. Sometimes it may be best to meet in person, and other times it may be wise to address them with a letter first. These are just a few of the many approaches that could be employed when attempting to win back a brother or sister who has erected strong walls and whose contentions are like the bars of a castle. The third thing that we learn from Jacob's example is the power of humility. Jacob humbled himself before his brother with very good results. We see this account in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 33, verses 1 through 7, and I'll read that. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and her two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in the front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. This is a detailed description of the moment of truth. Jacob laid aside his pride and bowed himself seven times before his brother. This was a remarkable act of respect and humility towards his brother. H.C. Leupold, in his excellent commentary of Genesis, explains why Jacob did this seven times. And I quote, Jacob bowed, advanced a few steps, and bowed again until seven obeisances were made 
such tokens of respect to the number of seven were the customary homage tendered to kings according to the El Armana tablets, end of quote. Not only did Jacob do this himself, but he had also instructed his wives and children how they should bow themselves when they met Esau. By both words and actions, Jacob is suggesting that Esau is his superior and showing him the honor that would accompany such a position. When we're trying to win back an offended brother or sister, we would do well to stop and consider how we can humble ourselves in relation to that person. The best way that we can humble ourselves if we have sinned against someone is to confess our sin and ask for their forgiveness. Sometimes a simple I am sorry can go a long way to bringing down the walls or cutting through the bars of the castle. Over the years, I've grown to appreciate Ken Sand's book titled The Peacemaker. And in that book, he has an excellent chapter on the power of confession. In that chapter, he breaks it down to the seven A's of confession. Seven words that start with an A concerning confession. And I'll just go through those seven points. Number one, address everyone involved. God, the individual, or the individuals that have, you have sinned against, and other witnesses to your sin. In other words, if you're a father and you sin towards your, one of your children, maybe some harsh words spoken, unjustified, don't just confess that to the child, but if the whole family witnessed the transgression, confess it to, in the presence of the rest of the family. Number two, avoid the words if, but, and maybe. The best way to ruin a confession is to use the words that shift the blame to others or appear to minimize or excuse our own guilt. Number three, admit specifically. Avoid generalities and confess specific attitudes and actions. Rather than just saying, I'm sorry, I offended you, I'm sorry I offended you, say something like, I'm sorry for my rebellious attitude when I disobeyed you. Number four, acknowledge the hurt. Offenses involve our feelings. So we should acknowledge that factor, and sometimes we should express sorrow for the way our sin has hurt them. Number five, accept the consequences. This is especially true when there has been theft, destruction of property, or some other need for restitution. Zacchaeus' willingness to make restitution to those he had stolen from is what gave his confession credibility. The prodigal son's willingness to become one of his father's hired servants was an example of someone who was prepared to accept the unpleasant consequences of his sin. Point number six, alter your behavior. 
Learn from your sin and change the behavior that led to the offense. And finally, number seven, ask for forgiveness. And he puts in parentheses, and allow for time. Sometimes forgiveness is easily obtained immediately. Other times it's a process that can take a significant amount of time. There are many other ways in addition to confession which we can express humility to those we have offended. We can make personal sacrifices on their behalf. We can serve them. We can demonstrate with words and actions that we esteem them more highly than we do ourselves. A soft answer is a humble verbal response to contentiousness. These are just a few of the ways that we can humble ourselves before an offended brother or sister. I've spent a considerable amount of time talking about the responsibilities of the offender. However, an offended brother also has some biblical responsibilities. This verse says that a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and their contentions are like the bars of a castle. I said at the beginning that this is a negative statement, and I want to emphasize that this type of reaction to a situation where we are sinned against is not a biblical response. We can't use this verse to justify erecting walls and fighting with those who sin against us. I used Esau as an example of a person who reacted this way, but he was not a godly man, and therefore he is not a person to emulate. How should a Christian respond to those who sin against them? One possibility is to simply overlook the offense. This is certainly not advisable in all cases, but with many minor offenses, it is a very biblical response. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11 says, The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. That word transgression in the Hebrew is the same Hebrew word as offended, a brother offended. So, Proverbs says that it is his glory to overlook the offense or the transgression. How do we overlook a transgression? It is through adopting an attitude of unconditional forgiveness. By that I mean that we are making a choice not to hold the offense against the offender by erecting walls and being contentious. It doesn't mean that we forget the offense. We certainly should not excuse the offense, and our forgiveness does not absolve them of any guilt or responsibility in the matter. What we are doing is maintaining a loving and merciful attitude towards them. We might pray for them, and we stand ready to pursue complete reconciliation as soon as the transgressor repents. The Apostle Paul describes this attitude in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, as the elect of God, that's us, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, 
even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. When we do this, we become imitators of the way God relates to us and our sins. The psalmist said in Psalm 103, verses 8 and 9, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. So that is one possibility. We can respond like God has responded to us and not deal with the offender according to their sins or punish them according to their iniquities. It's also a good idea to count the cost before turning an offense against us into a full-blown conflict. When we engage in personal conflicts, regardless of whose fault it is, there is a price that we pay that we may not have anticipated. Our focus is, is on how we can make them pay for their offense, but we forget that conflict exacts a heavy toll on us as well. Conflict can lead to significant losses of time, property, or money. Many times it leads to attitudes like self-pity, resentment, and bitterness, which in turn are poisons that negatively affect our relationships with other people who were not even involved in the initial conflict. A spirit of anger and unforgiveness can also hinder our relationship with God. I alluded to it earlier, but for the sake of balance, I want to emphasize that there are relational sins that should not and cannot be overlooked. Accountability, confrontation, and even punishment is required in some situations. Some examples are violence, abuse, perversion, exploitation, and criminal activity. A person who has been sinned against in any of these er in these ways should get help and should seek to have the offender held accountable. I think we would all agree that it's a great blessing when personal conflict can be avoided. But it is not always possible because we live in a sin-cursed world. The Apostle Paul said as much in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He said, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Paul allows that sometimes it's not possible to remain at peace with all men. However, he is saying that we should never be the obstacle to peace with others, and we should certainly not be the cause of the conflict. The best way to avoid offending our brother and the potential conflict that could result from that is summarized in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7. You're welcome to turn there if you want. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7. There, we're told that when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. What are some ways that we can please the Lord? When I thought about that question, my mind went to Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, where it says, 
Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is what? Well-pleasing to the Lord. God is pleased with obedience, whether it is children to their parents or any one of us obeying his word. Colossians 1.10 says that fruitfulness is pleasing to God. What is fruitfulness? Galatians chapter 5 has a list of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. They are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. When our lives bear these fruits, God is pleased with us. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says that the gift the Philippians sent to him by Epaphroditus was an acceptable sacrifice and well-pleasing to God. When we serve others and make sacrifices for them, God is pleased with us. Hebrews 13, 21 says that our good works are well-pleasing in God's sight. So then when our ways of speech, our ways of honesty and integrity, our ways of sacrifice and service to others, and our ways of relating to our fellow men, when those ways characterize our lives, God is pleased. And it says that he makes even our enemies to be at peace with us. In this verse, the proverb writer is using a form of speech called argumentum a fortiori. Now that is a Latin expression that literally means to argue from the stronger. This form of speech is used when one argues from the greater to the lesser to emphasize a point. For example, the Apostle Paul used this form of speech in 1 Corinthians 6.3, where he said, and he's, he's exhorting the Corinthians to deal with their own problems within their own congregation. And he says, do you not know that we shall judge angels? That's the greater. How much more the things that pertain to this life? In other words, the, the problems among themselves. That's the lesser. And Jesus used this form of speech in uh, Luke chapter 13, where he argued that since they untied their livestock to give them water on the Sabbath, he was justified in healing a daughter of Abraham on the Sabbath, since she had much greater value than any animal. In this case, in this verse in Proverbs, if a person is at peace with his enemies, those he is at least likely to be at peace with, it is assumed that he is also at peace with others. In other words, if peace with enemies is the result of our conducting ourselves in a way that pleases God, how much more then will result in peace in our other relationships with brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, or friends and relatives? I want to close today with a challenge to all of us by looking at this verse in reverse. If any of us are in a situation where we are involved in a lot of conflict, 
with those we live with, work with, or fellowship with. And I'm thinking specifically if, there's a, if we have trouble and conflict with many different people. It's not just one person. Isn't it reasonable to ask ourselves the question, do my ways please the Lord? Yes, it's true. As we said, we can't always avoid conflict. But I think it behooves us to at least engage in some self-examination and follow the Apostle Paul's advice that I mentioned before in Romans chapter 12. He said, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So I'll close there and uh, let's bow our heads for, for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We thank you for the instructions that we find in, in your word. Also the illustrations from many lives lived in the past. Father, for um, the example of Jacob and Esau and many, many others. Lord, we thank you for these things and we pray, Lord, that today, Father, that the word, your word would permeate our hearts and that you would change us. And Father, that we might be known as a people of peace. Father, where there's conflicts in our lives, Help us to deal with them appropriately. And Lord, we pray that you would, um, that you would be pleased with our ways and give us peace among, among ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name.